Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to part two of the history hit World War special on the raid on Dieppe. I bring you back Professor David O'Keefe, who has spent the last 25 years trying to figure out why Dieppe actually took place. And you join us at the point where we learn who is in charge, who's coordinating the mission, and whether or not they reach that Enigma machine. Enjoy. It's all fascinating, but you've got to take us into detail here about what actually happens with these Royal Marine Commandos then. Who is it who's in charge of them back on the ship? Who is it who's coordinating them on the ground? And most importantly, Dave, do they get the four-rotor Enigma machine? This is part and parcel of this fascinating mystery is whether they get to their target and they get out with it. Well, first of all, if we take a look at the force, the force is made up of 350 Royal Marine Commandos, and they're spread out into two strike forces. The first strike force is on the HMS Locust. The HMS Locust is a river gunboat designed for the Yangtze River, for imperial policing. Well, it has a flat bottom, and that's exactly what they want, because the idea is, kind of like St. Nazaire, except without the explosives, they are going to run the gauntlet of Dieppe. In other words, when the operation is unfolding, they're going to take about half of those 350 Royal Marines, and they're going to put them on the deck of the Locust, and they are going to upgun the Locust. And the Locust is pretty heavily armed. It's a gunboat. And they're basically going to sail it straight into Dieppe Harbor as a strike force. It's going to be cooperating with one Canadian unit called the Essex Scottish, the tanks, the engineers, all to pull off the pinch. Now, the idea is that once they get in, there's also going to be a second strike force that's coming in behind, and they're going to be on what they call free French chasseurs, which are essentially sloops, and they're following along. So now you have several contingencies built in. And the idea is to swoop into the harbor and in conjunction with the Canadian infantry tanks and engineers to be able to hit not only naval headquarters and what they suspect is a supply depot, but also to uh, pinch material from all the German vessels that are in the harbor at that time. And of course, they had been tracking the traffic for two years by this time, and they knew the habits of the Germans. They were still, at this point, able to tap into the three-rotor Enigma, which was, for the most part at that time, still holding in the channel. 
So they had great faith that they would be able to predict arrival and departure times. So knowing exactly the routine of when ships would be in Dieppe, et cetera, they'd be able to keep their fingers on the pulse. Because the idea was you wanted to get in when it was full. Because if you could get in and capture something that was current for the month or the next month, that would give that insight to the code breaker. So in other words, it's kind of like um, cheating in a crossword. Sometimes if you get a word or two, it kind of unlocks everything else. That's what they're looking for. And Dieppe had that. So whether it be on the ships or what they thought was in naval headquarters in a little place called the Hotel Moderne, this was considered to be the pot of gold because Dieppe also had a communication supply distribution center, which meant that if they're distributing or in the process of distributing the four-rotor Enigma, it means you would either have machines or more importantly, the cipher aids. So basically the instruction manuals that allow you to set it up and be operational for the next two, three, four, maybe six months down the road. So this is considered to be the pot of gold. So basically you have something that is real boy's own. Had they pulled this off, St. Desire probably would have faded in the background. The other fascinating part is on the Locust, there is somebody else who's in charge of the entire cutting out force, as they call it. And he is the newly minted Victoria Cross recipient, Lieutenant Commander Red Rider. He earned the Victoria Cross at St. Nazaire. And he was the most experienced and the most trusted of, I guess, anybody when it came to naval operations or naval raiding operations. And so he was brought in. So you are bringing in your big striker. You're not tossing this off to people who are learning lessons. You're bringing in your top guns on this one. And so he was supposed to go in on the Locust as well. And on that day, unfortunately, as we mentioned right off the top, things did not go according to plan. As a matter of fact, it was all predicated on surprise and very tight timings, which are never good in any type of military operation. As a matter of fact, we've learned the painful lessons in World War I, World War II, and sadly even since. So as a result, the Canadians stumble and fall coming out of the blocks. The German defenses, that's always been a bit of a controversy. They are stronger in quality, not quantity, but I get the impression that British naval intelligence and also Mountbatten's intelligence was interpreting it rosy. In other words, that these are not frontline troops. These are second line German units and they're very complacent. Well, it's also 1942. The Germans are at the height of their power. So even a B-squad German... (laughs) It's still damn good. And so as a result, the Germans actually turn in a fantastic defensive battle. And so the Canadians barely get off the beach. They're gunned down. They don't get into the port. But that doesn't stop the Locust. Because as a matter of fact, regardless of what happened with the Canadians, it would be lovely if the Canadians got into the port and were able to suppress German fighting ability in the port. It didn't matter. Locust had orders. They were going to run the gauntlet if they could get into the entrance to the harbor. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen Dieppe, but you know there's a harbor mole, which leads to a channel, which leads to the outer port. And the only orders they had were that if you are going to be hit and perhaps sunk before you reach the harbor mole, then by all means, don't go in. However, once you reach the harbor mole, it's the point of no return. It's full speed ahead, and even if the Locust is sunk, Mountbatten has actually issued orders for the commandos to swim to their targets. So I'm sitting in the archives and I'm reading this. I'm like, you can't make this up. 
you just can't. I mean, this really is the edge of the razor. This is it. This is boy's own. And you think back to Satan is there. We're going to take an old destroyer. We're going to pack it full of explosives. We're going to ram it into a dry dock. And then a bunch of commandos are going to jump off. It's going to blow up. They're going to hit their target. And then what's their exfiltration? Run to Spain. So, <laughs> you know, these are things that they've been doing. And of course, Mountbatten, there's hubris that's involved in here. There's a victory disease, if you will, because nothing has gone against Mountbatten until this point. So now, of course, oh, there's a slaughter on the beach. The Royal Marines try to get in. They try on two occasions to reach the Harbor Mole. And because, unfortunately, the Canadians on one flank do not get the cliff that controls access to Dieppe's Harbor, they end up taking heavy fire and the decision is made not to chance it again. So they return to the headquarters ship where the Naval Force Commander Hughes Hallett is there. And in conjunction with the Land Force Commander, Han Roberts, they decide that they're going to transship the Royal Marine Commandos and take them off the Locust and put them in landing craft. And what they're going to do is they're going to send them in right behind the Canadians who are trying to get into the harbor, but can't. And I tend to use a North American football analogy. In other words, they're on the goal line and they can feel it. They're getting so close. As a matter of fact, there's some erroneous reports to say that the Essex Scottish have actually had some success and they're near the port. And so the picture that's being painted in the fog of war, which of course is dressed up by the rosy interpretation they're putting on this, is look, all we have to do is just push them in over and we're going to get what we're looking for. So not only does Ham Roberts send in another Canadian unit before the Royal Marines, they're unfortunately slaughtered. That's the Fusilier Mont-Royal. And then he sends in the tanks, the second wave of tanks, which for some reason never show up. But in the interim, he also sends in the Royal Marine Commandos. And the Royal Marine Commandos end up going in, and as it's described, and I think justifiably so, it's the amphibious charge of the Light Brigade. They are gunned down as they are moving in. And one of the most heroic acts, I would argue, on that day is their commander, Picton Phillips. His nickname was Tiger. As a matter of fact, the first strike force was named after him, Tiger Force. He jumps up on the back of a landing craft and dons white signals gloves. And in the hail of fire, he starts waving off the attack, knowing full well that they're going to be slaughtered when they hit the beach. And right in the middle of this, he's cut in half and killed by German fire. And it's something that traditionally... You don't recognize that kind of heroic act in calling off an operation. But in reality, he ends up saving hundreds of lives. So there's no doubt about it in this heroic act. But he was in overall command, Picton Phillips, of the 350 Royal Marine Commandos. But the one platoon that was specifically supposed to get in was carved from the Royal Marine Commando. It was called number 10 platoon or X platoon. And it was tapped on the shoulder by Ian Fleming. And Ian Fleming, of course, was the assistant to the director of naval intelligence. And it was his portfolio, one of his many portfolios, as a matter of fact, he was responsible for pinch operations. And so in March of 42, when they found out that a vessel in the channel had the four rotor that they were looking for, he came up with the concept of a naval intelligence assault unit that was specifically tasked with capturing anything and everything to do with the four rotor. So in part, Dieppe is about pulling off the pinch. And secondly, it's about Fleming's IAU, as he called it, intelligence assault unit, making their debut. 
And so basically he's trying to sell this concept. It's essentially been sold with the British, but he's also trying to sell us with the Americans. They're basically trying to show the Americans that they're doing everything they can to solve the Ford rotor crisis. But I was trying to figure out why he ended up tapping 10 platoon on the shoulder of anybody. In other words, why in the Royal Marine Commandos would you choose them? Well, it comes down, in my opinion, to their 21-year-old lieutenant, Herbert Oliver Huntington Whiteley. And if that name rings a bell, in current days, his great-niece is the Victoria's Secret supermodel, Rosie Huntington Whiteley. So there you go. There's the contemporary connection. But in World War II, when I looked in the background of Herbert Oliver Huntington Whiteley, you realized if you cut him in half, he'd bleed the Union Jack. One of his relatives was Rudyard Kipling. Two others were the head of the British Academy of Arts. And his grandfather was Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. So you couldn't get more establishment, if you will, in England. And of course, that's the way the British intelligence tended to work when it came to security purposes. The idea was your bloodlines meant a lot. They had to know you. They had to know your family. They had to know that you could be counted on. And sure enough, he was the kind of character that apparently you could. So out of that, there was about 30 men who were crafted into this intelligence assault unit. Now, the idea was, up until this point, the pinch operations had been carried out by essentially ad hoc units or army commandos. And the Navy wanted something that was definitely under their control and something much more professional than ad hoc pinch units that were created from, say, ships, companies, and whatever else. They wanted them specially trained. They wanted them partially indoctrinated. In other words, you couldn't tell them what was going on at Bletchley. You couldn't even tell them what Bletchley was or why you needed this material. But they had to know what to look for. They had to understand what an enigma looked like or pieces of an enigma looked like or the kind of materials that would be associated with an enigma. So it's a bit of a game you're playing. In other words, in military, security is all about stovepiping. It's all about the need to know. And they were told perhaps a little bit more, but it was what they were deemed to need to know. So they were supposed to go in on the locust, each one of the men carrying a haversack, which they could stuff with whatever they could find. I think there was roughly about 15 haversacks. So that means they were expecting to find a lot. And we know on the day there was a signals facility in the port because as part of the standard operating procedure, they started destroying material. And there's a fantastic report, a German report, which again, when you're in the archives, you just can't make this stuff up. You're reading it. They're talking about as soon as the allies were getting too close for comfort, they started ripping down their signals facilities and stuffing their own bags and then throwing them into the water because almost all naval signal stuff is water soluble. So in other words, it'll dissolve when it's thrown in. That's how you get rid of it. So they started throwing the bags in. And I think there were six bags and the sixth bag didn't sink. All of them had weights in it. And for some reason, somebody forgot to put a weight in. So here it is floating around in Dieppe Harbor in the middle of this battle. And it has, from what we can see, the kind of material, maybe not specifically Enigma related, but stuff that would have been useful. And remember that this was also the sixth bag. And of course, it's all done in priority. So the first five bags probably were the pot of gold that they were looking for. The sixth bag ends up floating. And you can imagine, here I am sitting at Kew. I'm at the National Archives at Kew, and I'm reading this report. And I start belly laughing, which is not something you generally do at Kew. Because as I'm reading this, the Germans are talking about their frustration about this sixth bag. And the fact is, the sixth bag wouldn't sink. So they started shooting it, and it wouldn't sink. 
So finally, somebody got the bright idea of throwing a grenade at it and the grenade landed on top of it. But what it did was it blew the bag sky high, showering the entire area, the dockyard with all the signals material that they were supposed to destroy. So this comedy of errors that is just so human. I'm just reading this at Q and I'm laughing my head off at Q going like, you can't make this up. But the key was where this was happening was literally just about 10 or 20 yards from the farthest point that the Canadians were able to get. So literally on the goal line, within a stone's throw, the commanders on that day, both the Naval Force and particularly the Land Force Commander, Ham Roberts, literally go all in on Main Beach. They use every contingency at their disposal to try to get this main objective and get out. And sadly, they come up just short. What a remarkable history. This is really a rewriting of the history of DM. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, 
In light of all this new evidence about why Dieppe really took place and the truth behind it, how do we deal with all the other excuses and the myths that are out there? Well, I think one of the important things that I had to do as a historian was go back and take a look at all those excuses. Because frankly, if I'm going to go and spend all this time and go through 150,000 plus pages of material, no matter what I find is going to be the answer at the end, regardless of what it is. And so if it wasn't this, and I found what the engine was, we'd be talking about that. But some of the traditional excuses, of course, the number one, which it makes me cringe at every anniversary is the concept of lessons learned, which is kind of just a catch-all. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the old American sitcom Cheers, where you had Cliff Clavin, the know-it-all postman who finally gets his chance on Jeopardy and then bets it all on the last question and he doesn't know the answer. And so as a result, he just says, people who have never been in my kitchen. <laughs> so this catch-all. Well, that's what the lessons learned is like. Because, of course, you and I are sitting down to do a podcast today. We're discussing Dieppe and you're learning about Dieppe. You're not learning how to podcast. This is not why we're getting together. You're going to learn some stuff as you go, of course, but that's not your main reason. The lessons that they claim are being learned are not something that they needed to learn in this kind of fashion. As a matter of fact, what people tend to forget is, first of all, the Brits are not neophytes when it comes to amphibious operations. As a matter of fact, they've been pulling them off in the Mediterranean in the last year. They also just pulled off, and people tend to forget this when it comes to the DF historiography, they just pulled off the invasion of Madagascar. And of course, yes, you're not going up against Hitler's vaunted Atlantic wall, but it doesn't matter. You are still using the same basic principles. And of course, one of the big problems is they always tend to tie this to hindsight. In other words, that Dieppe was the precursor for Normandy. No, no, it wasn't. Dieppe, from an architectural perspective, a planning perspective, is not what you need if you're trying to plan a major amphibious campaign or invasion. This is a butcher and bolt raid. Yes, they both come across the channel in ships, but that's pretty much where it ends. There's no logistical tail. Dieppe, you're in it and out. You're not establishing a bridgehead. You're not trying to break out. You're not trying to swarm into Germany. So completely separate beasts. And that's the same thing when it applies to Sicily, when it applies to North Africa or Italy. The genuine lessons for Normandy are learned there and in the Pacific. They're not learned on the beaches of Dieppe, at least not in the conventional sense by any means. The other one, of course, is the aid to the Russians. And this is kind of, there's some truth and there's a lot of mistruth, if you will, in all of this. We tend to link it to the second front issue. In other words, the Russians are hanging on by their fingernails. Stalin is screaming for some sort of action. And as a response to his critique, this is what Dieppe is all about. That is not true. As a matter of fact, Dieppe is planned on its own plane, in its own lane, on its own level, and remains there. There are other operations that are being planned. Operation Sledgehammer, Operations Coleman, Operation Imperator, which all satisfy those requirements or that are kept ready in case something goes south on the Eastern Front. The other one, which is interesting, is public relations. As a matter of fact, the evidence, I show it in the book, political warfare executive that was responsible for the propaganda narrative either had no idea Dieppe was coming, and when they found out about it, didn't want any part of it. They didn't want this raid to go in. As a matter of fact, they said, don't. This is not going to do anything for us. As a matter of fact, it's going to have a boomerang effect. This does not go with our narrative. How the hell are we going to explain this? So certainly they're not putting it on for those purposes, without a doubt. And then, of course, there are more conspiratorial ones that, frankly, I don't even know whether worth getting into. 
I think originally, and I say this because I studied with Professor Brian Villa, who is a wonderful, brilliant historian, but with history and, and who knows, you know, I shoot off my mouth now, one of my students will probably come along and tell me how wrong I was in 25 years. His conclusions were state of the art for the late 80s. And I understand why he concluded what he concluded in the late 80s, early 90s. And he concluded that this was an authorized action by Mountbatten as part of his empire building. And for the longest time, that did seem to hold a lot of weight because what Brian did was expose the architecture of the argument where the evidence was missing. And to be honest with you, that allowed me then, when I made the discovery about the connection between the pinch operations and Dieppe, suddenly I had this landscape I could navigate. And a lot of it had to do with Brian. But at the end of the day, I would have to argue, and I think Brian would probably agree over the years. And again, that's the nature of history. It's not static. It does change. It evolves, new understandings, new research, that this was not an unauthorized action. It may have been an unorthodox action, which it certainly was, but nevertheless, it had a genuine purpose, which was crucial in 1942, without a doubt. Why do you think it's taken so long for the truth of the Dieppe raid to come out? Were we being lied to? Was it just too sensitive to release after the war, with the Cold War raging? Were soldiers sworn to secrecy? What are the reasons behind this? Well, kind of all of the above, to be honest with you. You know, one of the problems, and I mentioned this before, the idea that with combined operations, you can dictate the narrative. And the narrative is not only for security purposes, but also historical purposes, or at least a secondary reason would be for history. So as a result, right from the start, and even though the commanders were sanctioned to take heavy casualties if necessary to get their objective, I don't think they ever expected to take this amount of casualties. So as a result, it was truly considered to be a disaster. So immediately you see a distancing from what this was all about, but primarily it comes down to ultra security classification. In other words, you have one of the greatest secrets. Most of the people who were involved here ended up going to their deaths before the ultra secret was revealed in the late 1970s. And then, of course, when Ultra was revealed in the late 1970s, there was such a huge rush by historians. In other words, this is going to completely rewrite the history of the Second World War. That gave the British government cold feet. And there's been some new stuff that's been released recently to show that they were worried about opening a Pandora's box, which they could not control. So as a result, they put a kibosh on that by not releasing more than about 10,000 pages of material in the late 1970s, which then boomeranged on the historical community because everybody kind of saw Ultra for a while as a white elephant. In other words, oh yeah, so much promise, it never delivered. Well, very quietly in the mid-1990s, I guess on the 50th anniversary, GCHQ released millions of pages and continue to do so to this day in a very protracted way. And they do that because it's kind of like, if you get all the puzzle pieces at once, you're going to be like freaking out and this is going to be incredible and there's going to be so many different interpretations and it's going to be unwieldy to manage. But if you drop a couple of puzzle pieces in every single year, you may have an inkling of what the picture looks like, but it'll only be as the years unfold where you see it. And that's exactly what happens here. But partly, and to get back to what you were saying, it is because of the realities of the Cold War. 
Cryptography is exploding. Cryptanalysis is exploding. The biggest intelligence agencies we see in the world today are the ones dedicated to signals intelligence, whether it be GCHQ or NSA or CSE here in Canada and others. You're seeing a dawning of a new age. So as a result, at the end of World War II and even into the 1970s, they weren't really interested in revealing what kind of things they'd been up to because they were still applicable in the Cold War. Not to mention just applicable in the Cold War, but also the methods and the lengths that they would go to, to get the kind of material and also the intellectual approaches to cryptography, which is something that, of course, is still sensitive. When I approached GCHQ and I took this to them and I sent them a five-page email, and thank God they had a fantastic historian that was working there, Tony Comer, Great Britain, Canada, the entire historical community owes such a great debt and great thanks to Tony because Tony was the one who said, yeah, he said, basically the second world war is the second world war. We did great things and we need to release this material. So he did, he sped up the release of material that was already slated to come out. And that certainly helped me. So GCHQ of course was very important in this releasing that kind of material. And they did it within 48 hours. <laughs> which was amazing. I wasn't expecting that. Not like anybody knew I was working on it, which was fascinating. So they came out with that and that really sped things up. But a lot of it has to do with the fact that, yeah, they were still, and they still are uptight when it comes to intellectual approaches. In other words, almost everything now Enigma related has been released with the exception of the intellectual approaches, the histories that deal with the intellectual approaches to cryptanalyst and cryptography. Those are still classified. And as far as I know, they're going to be classified for a while. So I'm not sure what you can make out of that, whether it's scary that we're still using the same intellectual approach now that we were doing 70 years ago, or the fact that some things never change. You see, the thing that I find most astounding here, and to bring it back round to that tragic day on August 19th, is that those who gave their lives would never have known exactly what the mission was all about. And those veterans who lived for so many years without knowing the importance of their mission. Have you been able to speak to those veterans that are still around, still alive, and to give them some sort of closure just about the importance of this mission? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was fortunate enough. When all this research came to a head, it was about 2012, so right around the 70th anniversary. And at that time, I was filming a documentary which has been seen in the UK and around the world called Dieppe Uncovered. During the filming of that, we interviewed several survivors. And there was one in particular, a man by the name of Ron Beale, who had landed on Blue Beach with the Royal Regiment of Canada. He was 19 years old. And he had very much a typical Dieppe story. As a Canadian soldier, they had trained in England for two years. Canadians really had not done much on land at that time. We were fighting in the North Atlantic. We had a horrific two weeks in Hong Kong. And now this was the first chance, as he would say, to get at him. And of course, getting at him for him meant coming in on the third wave at Blue Beach, where the first two waves were gunned down in front of him. By the time he landed on the beach, it was crimson in color from the blood. He was lucky enough to make it in a dead sprint right across the beach. And then for the next couple of hours, he sat down terrified, hunkered under a cliff while the Germans lobbed grenades on top of them. And he watched the rest of his unit be gunned down. And then he spent two and a half years in a prisoner of war camp. And then at the end of that, they forced marched them across Europe before he finally came home. Now, like a lot of the Dieppe veterans, the 2nd Canadian Division was essentially destroyed. So you're taking 97% casualties in six out of your nine units. 
it had to be rebuilt. So by the time he comes home, he's a stranger in his own regiment. And regiments are supposed to be family. So that means something. And so he comes home. And of course, everybody's a stranger. And they all have these band of brothers stories about fighting in Normandy and liberating France and Belgium and Holland. And of course, defeating the Nazis. And he just basically talks about his two and a half years in a prisoner of war camp. So as a result, the Dieppe veterans, particularly in Canada, created their own association, their own veterans association, because they just didn't feel they fit in. And I don't think that was really the case, but that's the way they felt. Anyway, Ron ended up becoming the president of this, and he had essentially dedicated his entire life to figuring out what Dieppe was all about. And he had listened to things over the years and just nothing made sense. And this was a man who schooled himself and schooled himself appropriately. So when we interviewed him, we got the, what I would consider to be the typical reaction. We were thrown away for nothing. There was absolutely no purpose to this raid. And we said, okay, thank you very much. And it was my filmmaking partner, Wayne Abbott, who said, well, aren't you going to tell him? And I said, well, but I'm a historian. We don't do that. <laughs> you know, we do our interview, we go away, we write, we publish, and then they figure it out. And Wayne looks at me and he goes, he's 92, tell him. And so sure enough, we took him through for the next two and a half, three hours. We sat down with him. And you have to understand that by this time, I'd been working on this for at least 15 years. I had gone through 150,000 pages of material to test all the various hypotheses out there about Dieppe and was able then to go through probably about three to 400 pages with them just in those three hours. And it was amazing because you could see how everything was just falling into place with him. And I thought, you know, here's somebody who studied it all his life. Now, mind you, he had the typical infantryman's perspective, 50 yards wide, 50 yards deep. He was not in the high level planning or anything else, but at the same time, it would be an interesting litmus test. So at the end, he just looked and he said, I'm shocked. So we rolled the cameras again. And it's in the end of the Dieppe documentary where you can see this, but it was one of my most pivotal days, certainly as a historian, and perhaps one in my life. And I realized, truly realized the power of history at that time. And what he said made me go back and cross my T's and dot my I's because Jesus, you better be right after all this. Because he said, look, he said, it doesn't matter whether we didn't get to the target. He said, just the fact that there was a genuine purpose for us to be there. Now I know why my friends died and now I can die in peace. So that moment of truth and literally at the end of the day, that's all that's left is the truth. And it doesn't matter. It's not going to change the fact that 907 Canadians and in total over a thousand allied soldiers, sailors and airmen were killed that day. That is not going to change anything. But at least now we understand what we understand, why, and we can start asking serious, or at least I would argue more serious questions than we ever had in the past. And this is what the research does is it provides a pivotal moment in our understanding. It takes us to a completely different level, kind of like the atomic bomb when it was dropped changed the nature of warfare. Well, this is kind of the same way in the sense that we can never look at Dieppe the same way. And as many doors as it closes, it opens up a whole bunch of others. Dave, thank you so much. I know so many of our listeners from around the world are going to want to learn more and read more. Where can they do this? Well, it is available worldwide where any good books are sold and, of course, on Amazon. It is called One Day in August, Edith Fleming Enigma and the Deadly Dieppe Raid. It's available everywhere. 
I have read it. It is fantastic. I urge you to go out there and buy it. Dave, thank you so much. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me, guys. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.